welcome to episode 11 of the Underground Christian Podcast. We have been looking at the meaning of the term world, particularly when it comes to 1 John, when the Apostle advises that we should not love the world or the things of the world. We said that the term world means the worldwide governmental, economic, and social system that's working to advance the agenda of Satan, the fallen angel who's warring with God. Now, I know that some of you may not believe in angels or maybe even in God, and I appreciate that because I was there once. Nevertheless, all I can tell you is that the Bible is all about God and it is full of angels. On top of that, it's signed by God to prove its divine authority and authenticity. So if you missed episode 6, put this one on pause and go back and listen to that one first. Angels are not literary devices or figments of the biblical author's imaginations, but they're real thinking intelligent and deliberative entities. If you have a hard time believing that, then you're going to have a very hard time understanding what's really going on in this world, because they are intimately connected to everything that's happening internationally and corporately. You are, in effect, completely blind to the actual cause of most of the world's problems, not to mention the looming and almost incomprehensible evil that's bearing down on us. We went on to identify from Scripture three of Satan's overall objectives in this war, which might help us to identify some worldly things that we should not love. The three objectives of Satan we identified are, number one, to exalt his throne by ruling over the nations of the world. His throne represents his ruling authority over human beings that's expressed when he controls world systems, particularly governmental systems, through his selected human proxies. The more people of the world that follow Satan's directions, willfully or otherwise, the greater is his exaltation. His second objective is to sit on the mount of the congregation. We said this is a council of angels that oversees the affairs of other angels, particularly ones who are assigned to duties on the earth. Not satisfied with controlling the human nations, he also wants to control the council as its leader. And third, he seeks to ascend above the heights of the clouds. In this case, the clouds do not refer to wisps of vapor, but to the Shekinah glory of God, which is often manifested as a cloud and sometimes as a light. No one can see God and live, according to Exodus 33.20, so instead we're permitted to see something that represents God. On Mount Sinai, the Shekinah was a dark, foreboding cloud of lightning and thunder that covered the mountain for days and from which God's voice was heard. God used that manifestation to exemplify his power and his authority over the people of Israel. He used a cloud to lead the Israelites out of Egypt by day and a light to lead them by night. The Shekinah filled the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple as a kind of a shimmery mist. The Shekinah symbolizes God the Father's authority and power on the earth as manifested in a visible phenomenon of physics. Jesus modeled all the characteristics of divinity in a human form. When Satan says that he wants to ascend above the heights of the clouds, he's saying that he wants to elevate his status above that of God so that he can be worshipped as God. So according to the Bible, these are the things that Satan is seeking in his prolonged rebellion against God. It doesn't say why he seeks these things, but it's enough for us to know that he does seek them. So now that we've reviewed Satan's main objectives, we're going to see how he will implement them on this little planet, because that will expose the world that we are supposed to come out of. Satan, like God, must operate through human beings to implement whatever plan he comes up with. The culmination of all this plotting and scheming comes in the period that the Bible calls the end times. 
the climax of which is the great tribulation and the return of Jesus Christ. This is the period of human history when Satan will exercise his greatest control over the world and when life on earth will become, well, a little bit like the place where Satan is ultimately headed. In the Bible, God told us about the major events of this period, and since they have not happened yet, we can safely conclude that they are still in the future. We don't know how far in the future they are, but since they are in the future, we at least know one important fact. The end-time events must take place in the modern context of science and technology. That bit of insight provides a clue as to the meaning and timing of certain end-time events that God thoughtfully described in Scripture. Why is this important? Because we've been commanded to come out of the world, to not love the things of the world, and to not work for the satanic system that will grow in power and influence until it dominates the globe at that time. This can be extremely hard when we have an emotional attachment to the things of the world, but it's going to be much more difficult and treacherous when the things of this world are exceptionally well camouflaged to appear as helpful, maybe even necessary things that we all want. And that is how Satan plans on pulling off the greatest deception of all time, the one that people who are careless, naive, and unwary are going to easily fall for. So if you fall for it, don't say you weren't forewarned. God himself spent an inordinate amount of print space warning about deceptions in general, as we covered in great detail already, but especially in episode 2. But the Bible warns us most emphatically about the coming great deception. Even Jesus told us about it in Matthew 24, 24, where it says, For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. Signs and wonders are actions and events that will be used to persuade people of the truth of things that are not really true, but look really, really convincing. There's been a lot of speculation about what this deception will be, and it could potentially have elements of all kinds of things. But whatever it is, the great deception will absolutely fool those who are not extremely wary and cautious. Jesus says it will be so believable that even the elect would fall for it, except for the fact that the awake Christians have been forewarned. And I can tell you for certain that it is one powerful deception— because it contains a whole lot of valuable, profitable, needful truth, and just a teeny tiny bit of deadly lies. But you only need a little bit of deadly poison to ruin that whole birthday cake. Or as God put it, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Just a little yeast is all it takes to make the whole bread rise. And the leaven of this deception is being set up right now as you listen to this podcast. If we're going to successfully see through the deception and understand how it works, we must understand a little biblical history, because Jesus gave us the secret clue to this deception when he said, in Matthew 24:37, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Now, this little phrase is the major clue to understanding the great deception. While episode 6 of this podcast told us why we can believe what Scripture says is true, in 2 Timothy 3.16, God told us the purpose of Scripture. He said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, 
for correction and for instruction in righteousness. And Paul, when he recounted some past examples of bad decisions of people in the Bible, also said in 1 Corinthians 10.6, Now these things were recorded as examples so that we will not lust after evil things as they did. So one of the many purposes of the Bible is to give us examples that we can follow to keep our life aligned with God's will. Now let's look at a specific example and learn from it. It may appear, based on recent events, that Satan has things pretty well under control in this world, and to some extent he does. But he also has a fundamental problem that he has to overcome before he can implement his objectives. The problem is that human beings are made in the image of God, and human beings made in the image of God can obtain the protection of God, as the prophet told us in Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found, and call upon him while he is near. You see, people made in God's image have a built-in connection to God through our soul, spirit, and body. The spirit directly connects to God because it's the source of life that comes from God and returns to God, forming a two-way connection. The spirit affects our heart and our soul, the center and essence of our personalities. And both spirit and soul work through the body to interact with the physical world around us. The unique and intricate pattern created by our spirit, souls, and bodies creates a signature pattern that is known to the Holy Spirit of God and that is connected to the Holy Spirit, which is why we can reach out to Him and seek Him. In essence, our three-component being is stamped with an identifying name. The spirit stamp identifies our innate interests and abilities. The soul stamp identifies our heart and mind. The body stamp identifies our physical structure. These three stamps together identify us as belonging to God. The last one, the body stamp, is the only physical stamp we have. It ties us to this material world and differentiates us from every other living thing on the earth. It also integrates our spirit and soul to our body by translating those non-physical characteristics into a physical form and vice versa. Don't think that these three components are independent and distinct. They are not any more independent and distinct than are the Trinity components, the model that we're created after. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are distinct in one sense, but they are intimately linked in another, more important sense, and we are the same. That's what makes the body stamp the holy grail of life. If you were to re-engineer this stamp, you could not only change the body, but you could adversely affect both the spirit and the soul. Worse, you would alter the mark that identifies us as belonging to God. That is the spiritual name he's given to each of us. The body stamp is known technically as deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA. It is the detailed instruction set for how to build and operate each one of us. Believe it or not, Satan has a history of trying to alter this important stamp, and this meddling is recorded in the Bible. According to Genesis and other historic texts that discuss the events of this era, after the Garden of Eden incident, angels took human form and assisted in the administration of human affairs. Yes, here we go with the angels. I told you that you can't understand what's happening today if you don't understand the role that angels play in the world. In those ancient days, they were tasked with teaching technical skills and developing the essential characteristics of civilization in the growing human population. 
If you ever wondered why every ancient civilization had myths of mighty gods and goddesses that sound remarkably similar to each other, it's because the people of the time saw these angels and experienced what they did. Events of the era were repeated verbally in story form down through subsequent ages, which is how people remembered their history before the development of writing. This period is often referred to as the Antediluvian Era. Genesis 6 calls these angelic humanoids the mighty men of old and men of renown. In other places, the Bible refers to them as giants and Nephilim, which is roughly translated fallen ones or violent ones. There is another biblical term, Rephaim, which means dead ones. Its use generally postdates the Nephilim and generally refers to the race of smaller giants that postdated the flood. Anakim, for example, are the descendants of the giant Anak, who lived in southern Palestine, what we call Palestine today. The most famous biblical representatives of the Anakim were King Og and Goliath. According to Deuteronomy 3.11, King Og's bed was 14 feet long and 6 feet wide, which is large even for today's supersized sleep comfort wonders. Considering that people were generally much smaller in those days, a bed 14 feet long would contain a person almost twice the size of our largest modern human. Likewise, according to 1 Samuel 17, Goliath was 10 feet tall and wore a coat of mail weighing almost 160 pounds, probably more than the weight of the average soldier of the day. These were physically large and imposing people. In Numbers 13, 32, and 33, the men that Moses sent into Canaan came back and made the following report. All the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw giants. The descendants of Anak came from the giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. These descendants of the angels were terrifying enough, but the angels themselves were much, much worse. The Bible records that they left their proper domain, as Jude put it, and decided to have intimate relations with human women, as well as animals. This cross-breeding produced a whole range of chimeric monstrosities, which may be the source of other mythological creatures such as the Medusa and the Centaur. Whether Satan discovered something during this degenerate activity or he already suspected what would happen, the cross-breeding created a diabolical problem for humans. It seemed to have severed our ancestors' ability to connect to God. Most people think that God sent a flood to wipe out human beings because we sinned a lot. But people sinned a lot long before the flood, and they continued to sin a lot long after it. It wasn't human sin that brought the flood. The problem of human sin was fixed by Jesus Christ. It was the problem brought by the angels that took a flood to fix. They are different problems. The problem brought by the angels was the corruption of human bodies through the inbreeding with the Nephilim, the fallen angels. It was this corrupted flesh that God needed to destroy from the face of the earth along with the humanoid forms of the angels. That's what God was reminiscing about in Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. It says, God speaking now, I said, you are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High, but you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. God was speaking about the angels who were given biological bodies, but vastly superior bodies to ordinary humans. 
They were so superior, in fact, that to regular people, they possessed godlike abilities of fierceness, strength, and longevity. This was the time in history when monstrous structures were constructed using enormous blocks of rock, blocks so large that we are unable to move some of them today using all the power of modern technology. We are completely unable to match the feats of construction that humans of that era accomplished seemingly routinely. The remnants of these structures are still visible at places around the world, such as Gobekli Tepe in Turkey and Machu Picchu in Peru. Interestingly, all of them were severely damaged at some point after they were constructed, and only a small remnant of the structures remain. Many of these relic structures were used as the foundations for subsequent structures, on top of which are far smaller stones of much lower engineering quality that were used in construction. While the antediluvian dating of these early structures is disputed by many mainstream archaeologists, if not most, they have a built-in bias with regard to how they view and interpret history and historic records. They don't generally like the Bible or interpretations that are consistent with the Bible. Since there is no way to directly date these structures, interpretive dating is the only method we can use, and the date you get will depend on the assumptions that go into the calculation. It is the usually unstated and hidden assumptions that will make the difference. Without getting into an emotional dispute over ruins, the main point is that Satan did something long ago that required God to respond in a uniquely severe and dramatic way in order to correct it. This is how the Bible recounts these events. There were giants on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown, Genesis 6-4. Sons of God is a term that's always used to describe angels. These angels took human women and had sexual relations with them, producing offspring that were violent, corrupt, and warlike. But worse, their crossbreeding affected the entire human population of the earth in a way that necessitated a sterilization event. Genesis 6, 11-13 tells us about this. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. The them that God is referring to are the Nephilim, the fallen angels, not the human population. Now let's break this down carefully. The end of all flesh has come before me does not mean that all living creatures or even all human beings, were going to be destroyed. That's obvious, since Noah and his family, and lots of other animals tucked into the ark, were not destroyed, and they are certainly part of the group, all flesh. Are we not repeatedly taught by Bible commentators that the term all means all? Well, they're wrong. It does not always mean all. In this case, all clearly means something less than all. Maybe all means everything that wasn't in the ark. But that would be an interpretation of the text, and it's not even a necessary interpretation that must be drawn from the text. We will skip the debate about the term earth because it's somewhat beside the point in this podcast, but just keep in mind that there are perfectly valid interpretations of this word that could mean the flood was a regional event, a series of regional events, or a limited worldwide event. It does not necessarily mean it was a worldwide catastrophic sterilizing flood event. Singular.
What the word all cannot mean is that every living thing died in the flood other than the beings that were safely stowed in the ark. Let me say that again. What the word all cannot mean is that every living thing other than those in the ark were killed. Why do I say that? Because the Bible text goes on to say that there were giants in the earth in those days, meaning the days of Noah, and also afterward, meaning after Noah or after the flood. So where did these giants come from after Noah? Did they stow away on the ark? The Bible isn't talking about tall people. It's talking about Anakim, the descendants of the Nephilim who were angel-human crossbreeds. Clearly, the flood was an important event for many reasons, one of which was to kill off the angels themselves. However, some of their progeny survived the flood, so the flood could not have been a worldwide event that sterilized the planet. Not every animal and person on the planet died from the flood, just a lot of them. Now we have a reason to believe in the salvation of kangaroos without the magical transportation of them to the Middle East. In addition to stopping the angel corruptors, the primary target of this sanitization was to reset the human and animal gene pool with individuals who retained their natural genetic material. There is something unique in the genetic material that Satan's forces damaged sufficiently to require a reset. The angels changed our human bodies, and that change caused God to destroy most human beings and many animals from the face of the earth. That destruction took place because the genetic change severed our natural human connections to God. It changed our physical stamp, and that changed our spirit and or soul stamp as well. This is obvious from Genesis 6-5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. When the genes changed, the genetic alteration induced a change in the heart and soul at the same time. People are deceptively wicked, but they don't intend their thoughts and heart to fixate on evil continually. Even serial killers take a break from evil now and then. Something changed inside them that changed who they were, which is the equivalent of changing the spiritual name that God gave to us, or them. Their names, in other words, no longer matched the names that were recorded in the Book of Life. The restrainer no longer recognized them as belonging to God, so the restraint given by the grace of God to each person was taken away. The result was immediate and apparently irreversible. Every intent of their thoughts and hearts were evil continually. That manifested itself in their actions. Genesis 6.11 the earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. The earth was filled with violence because of what the Nephilim did to people, which is explicitly stated in Genesis 6.13. For the earth is filled with violence through them, them being the Nephilim. So cross-breeding with human beings changed something in people that made them irredeemably violent and evil. It effectively severed their connection to God so much so that they had to be destroyed. We have to conclude from the severity of God's response in sending the flood that the damage to the people could not be reversed. 
Fortunately for us, God promised in Genesis 9-11 that human beings would never again be destroyed in a flood like that. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. The term cut off here means killed. It's interesting that the promise is in Genesis 9-11. Anyway, God said something else back in chapter 8 that is very interesting. In verse 21, he said, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. We live in a general state of curse, which started back in the garden. However, this seems to more appropriately refer to the flood as the curse of the ground. In the case of the flood, the curse was for man's sake. It was for man's benefit, not for his punishment. Why is that? Because it was the only way that God could fix the problem of a broken connection and reestablish a connection to human beings. He had to rebuild a line of humans with an intact connection to himself to build the future kingdom for Christ. God needed intact humans on the earth because humans with a severed connection to God cannot enter the kingdom of God. They cannot be part of Christ's kingdom, and Satan knows that. Chimeras are human animal or human angel hybrids that have an altered DNA structure. That is what Satan accomplished pre flood, and that is what Satan is trying to recreate today. That is what will prevent human beings from connecting with God, seeking God, wanting to seek God, responding to God, and ultimately entering the kingdom of God. That is Satan's ultimate trump card to destroy God's greatest earthly creation. The first DNA-altering genetic modification serum to be authorized for human use was rolled out by a president named Trump. Funny, isn't it? Remember, God said he would never again curse the ground for human sake. He did it the first time because people had no way of knowing what Satan was doing and no way to resist the powerful angels. Neither of these reasons will be true the next time. God said that he will never send another flood, and he won't because the purpose of the water was to rescue a remnant. The next time, God will send fire instead of water because the remnant will already have been saved and no more saving will be necessary. Well, there will be a few more, but those few will have to endure for a time tucked safely into little hidey holes. Now that we know the direction that Satan is heading, let's see what tactics are in play and how they will ultimately be used to steer people in this direction. We're going to stray away from genetic modifications for just a little while to paint the bigger picture, but we'll get back to the genetics later. It's important for Americans to get the big picture first because America factors pretty importantly in an indirect way into the end times. Now, in the end times, there will be one worldwide government. There has to be one government for Satan to accomplish his objectives and for this demonic plan to work. The Bible implies that there will be one worldwide government in Revelation 13.3, where it says, All the world marveled and followed the beast. And in Daniel 7.23, where it says that a powerful government will devour the whole earth. There are other passages as well, but those are enough to get the idea. Whether the government operates as a megalithic worldwide entity or as a group of regional entities is not entirely clear, but what is clear is that this government will be led by a single demonically possessed individual who is alternately called the Antichrist, the Beast, the Man of Perdition, and the Man of Sin. One of the things that his government will do is invade and destroy national Israel. 
The fact of a national Israel is taken for granted today, but for most of the last 2,000 years, the only place you could find any reference to it was in the Bible. Israel, as a nation, was destroyed by the Neo-Babylonian Empire in 587 BC and never again was able to operate as an independent national entity after that. Even when they returned to their land after the deportation, there was always another regional power that controlled the area. In the days of Jesus, the region was controlled by vassal kings who were approved by the governing authority in Rome. Post-Jesus, Israel was controlled by Middle Eastern Christians, then Muslim Arabs, then European Christians, then Muslim Turks, then more Arab Muslims, and then more Arab Muslims under Christian rule. God told the Jews in the Old Testament that he would scatter them to the four corners of the earth if they turned from him to worship other gods. So when they did that, he scattered them. Yet throughout the Old Testament period, God continually reassured the Jews that they would get their nation back one day. By the beginning of the 20th century, that day looked very, very far off indeed. The events that were needed to recreate national Israel are a study in divine providence. But on May 14, 1948, propelled by sympathy from the Nazi Holocaust, the new nation of Israel was born. It was poor. It was weak. It was surrounded by vicious hordes of Arab Muslims, but it had accomplished something that no other nation has ever accomplished. In all of human history, no nation that had been completely destroyed and its people scattered around the world was ever resurrected. It had never happened. No nation that was completely destroyed has ever come back to reestablish its original culture, language, and religion, much less in the same location, and even more incredibly, after being absent for almost 2,000 years, and most incredibly of all, immediately after the attempted worldwide extermination of its people. If anything in modern life qualifies as a genuine miracle, it's the reestablishment of national Israel. God repeatedly said it would come back so people who understand that the Bible is the word of God should never have doubted. Even more miraculously, God not only brought Israel back into existence, but he has protected it ever since, even causing it to flourish. After only 73 years of existence, CEOWorld.biz ranks Israel as the 10th most powerful country in the world based on seven attributes, political stability, economic influence, defense budget, weapons, global alliances, soft power, and military strength. The World Economic Forum's Economic Competitiveness Report for 2017 ranked Israel second worldwide in technological innovation, second in venture capital availability, and third in research and development. That may be the first and last time you ever hear me quote something positive from the World Economic Forum. Israel has produced 12 Nobel Prize winners since 1966, and with only 0.2% of the world's population, Jewish people have been awarded 22% of all Nobel Prizes since 1901. Modern Israel has certainly been blessed, yet the Bible says that the Antichrist is going to destroy it. But before that happens, the gorilla protecting the country must first be neutralized. That gorilla is the United States. After the fall of the Soviet Union, the United States became the undisputed superpower champion of the world. It was first in economic power, first in military power, first in naval power. It had the largest and most sophisticated air force on the planet. 
and it was the first in technological power. Its nuclear arsenal was unmatched, and no country would challenge it. That was then, and oh, how times have changed. Nevertheless, we are still Israel's number one protector, and as long as the United States stands behind Israel, no one is going to attack it. Now, the Bible never mentions the United States specifically, but it does say that Israel will be attacked and conquered by the Antichrist. God said it, not me. So it's clear that God says something has to change. America must be removed as Israel's protector. For those people who love America, this is no doubt a hard, sobering truth to swallow. And by the way, I'm one of those. All loyal Americans are rooting for this country to indefinitely prosper and protect others. Yet it has never been more obvious that the forces of evil are strongly deployed against us. For those Christians who are fighting desperately for this country, I ask you to ponder the question, what am I really fighting for? Am I fighting for Jesus Christ and God? Or am I fighting for my version of the world? The United States cannot defend Israel forever because the Bible says it won't. Something about America has to change, or in the words of that famous American president, fundamental change is coming to America. And much as I hate to admit it, he's right. The question is when and in what form. Is America truly God's country, and will he defend it from all enemies, both foreign and domestic? The answer is no. Israel is God's country. America was founded on the principle of being under the authority of God, and God blessed us because of that. After World War II, America championed the formation of Israel and then defended it from outside threats, and God blessed us for that. Those blessings show the magnanimous grace of God because America is not God's country. It is Satan's country, and it was founded by his people. The American Constitution is not a document that institutionalizes God in government, and the important founders were not Christians in any real sense. They were in actuality part of the satanic organization that actually runs the world. We might look at the evidence supporting those statements in a future broadcast, but for the last few minutes of this one, I want to leave you with some thoughts about how, if I were a powerful angel behind the human powers of the world, I might bring America to its knees and end its support of Israel. Because there are only so many ways to do that. The history of the world is that strong people conquer and replace weak people. That's an unpleasant but indisputable fact. To end American support of Israel, and maybe even end America, the United States must be made weak. To make it weak, American strengths have to be degraded. America grew powerful because of six primary strengths of the country. Its core values, which were primarily Christian. Its independent spirit. Its economic productivity. Its educational emphasis. Its military preparedness. And its limited government. Now, I know, I want to hear this from people, I know God is behind all of this, and I understand that, but those are the, the ways that God worked out uh, how we became strong. Therefore, to destroy America and end its support of Israel, each of these strengths had to be attacked. Now, a whole episode could be dedicated to each one, but I'm just going to hit a few highlights. Our core values were founded and framed by Christian morals and ethics, and those values served the country really well for over 150 years. 
but they came under sustained and heavy attack almost from the beginning of the 21st century, but certainly in a new and dramatic way with the explosion of the cultural revolution of the 1960s. That attack advanced along three primary fronts. It promoted hypersexuality free from any moral restraints. It promoted the destruction of traditional family structures and authority. And it had a shameless promotion of self-interests at the expense of others. All three of these methods of attack are rolled together in the repugnant push to legalize all abortions and empower children to have abortions without parental consent. This is the predictable outcome of a society that values sex outside of marriage for its own sake, views pregnancy as an unexpected medical problem, kind of like the flu, and treats unborn children as appendages of less value than a tonsil. That's bad enough. But when we get to the point where we believe that men and women cannot be distinguished from each other without asking their opinion about pronouns, the level of moral and intellectual decay is almost incomprehensible. Independence. To establish a tyrannical system, all forms of independent thought and lifestyle need to be abolished and replaced with a system of complete dependency on government. Government bureaucracy was promoted and empowered at every level of government to remove free choice and decision-making from the public and replace it with government edicts. There is literally no activity we can engage in that is not regulated by some level of government, and people today have been brainwashed to believe that this is necessary for us to exist as a society. There's almost no independent activity or thought left in America. Just rule enforcement. Economic productivity. Way back in the 1990s, you know, the Dark Ages, America began a governmentally sanctioned and promoted plan to move American industrial systems overseas to take advantage of cheap labor. At the time, and you're going to have to take my word for this, I said to certain family members that shipping our industry overseas was stupid and would create a national security problem. There were far better ways to solve certain financial problems than to commit industrial suicide. But government officials gleefully cheered the migration of our industry for cheaper goods and a supposedly cleaner environment. Today, without industry to manufacture what we need, we are dependent on other countries to produce and distribute the most essential items that we have. And some of those countries are not our friend. We are seeing the effect of that outsourcing and growing shortages of goods, skyrocketing prices, and distribution bottlenecks. Educational emphasis. When the government considers parents terrorists because they complain to school boards about the curriculum they're using, we no longer have an educational system in America. We have official governmental indoctrination and persecution, and we don't have to look any further than that at the educational system. Military preparedness. Any government that runs away and abandons $85 billion worth of the best military equipment on earth to a hostile government intent on destroying America is a government that's not serious about our national security. When that same government abandons hundreds and maybe thousands of Americans and other allied citizens to that same enemy so that they can become their playthings, the government's political legitimacy to lead the military is non-existent. When we discharge a third of our military personnel because they will not take an experimental biological agent that's likely a bioweapon and subject the remainder of the forces to lap-dancing cross-dressers who promote transgender ideology, the future of our military preparedness is on life support. Limited government. There is no longer any sense of limitation to American government. Government officials intrude on every aspect of our lives, including who can operate a business, who can shop, go outside, 
associate with others, and maybe even vote. These kinds of tyrants will come for the guns of Americans, which are the only real thing that they fear. They will try to take them away from Americans like they have done everywhere else where tyranny has arisen. Disarming a population is necessary because tyrants fear the anger they will generate from the people who will soon realize the cost of becoming slaves to the tyrants, and they don't want to leave them any means to take out their anger on the regime. Once they take the guns away, there will be nothing anyone can do to stop tyranny from fully materializing in America. And we're not very far from some fabricated event that will give them the excuse to go house to house seizing weapons. So all of these things considered, it's actually a miracle that America has managed to protect Israel this long. No, America is not going to come to Israel's aid when it's attacked by the Antichrist, no matter how patriotic we think we are or how hard we fight the rats who are running this country. We either will not be willing to do so or we won't be able to do so. Or maybe both. All that remains to be seen is how and when America goes down. For all of this gloom, Satan has a far more ambitious and diabolical plan that he's rolling out for the entire world. But before we get too busy trying to fix our own misfortune, we should consider that we are part of this world. If we get too preoccupied fighting a worldly fight over what we can see in front of us, we might not notice the more important problem that is sneaking around behind us to stab us in the back. Many of us are still participating in the world because we have not taken ourselves out of it quite yet. So we will continue to expose Satan's plan next week with the goal of convincing some Christians to withdraw from this diabolical world system, as we have been repeatedly instructed to do, and start fighting the bigger battle using the weapons and the armor that Jesus Christ provided for this fight. We were not redeemed to simmer in anger over our temporary political condition. We were redeemed to push back against the ultimate evil that is emerging in the world, facing fire if we have to face fire, and facing it with the courage and determination of a redeemed people. We must always remember, though, which country we really belong to. Until then, if you found this podcast interesting, useful, important, or even somewhat ridiculous but entertaining, please recommend it to your family and friends and your neighbors and anyone else that you come across because uh, we really want to expand. Give it a thumbs up, a happy face, a smiley, or whatever else your app has to encourage others to listen and keep doing that. As I say each week, this is not a commercial enterprise and I'm not a professional podcaster. Just a small and unlikely person doing what I can to bring a tiniest sliver of light to the darkness of this world. There isn't a budget for this podcast, at least not much of one, so it's limited to what I can invest in time and in money. That's why it doesn't get posted every week like I would like. It's more like every two or maybe even a little bit more. Sorry about that. Hopefully, God will let me keep posting this podcast regularly, if not often, and with his help, reach a few more people. Trying to get that total maybe up to 20, 25 people by 19, uh, no, we're out of 19s now, 20, uh, 25 or something like that. Please pray for me and for it to be influential, that's the podcast, in the lives of everyone who is exposed to it. Underground Christian can be heard on several platforms, including Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Audible, TuneIn, iHeart, Player FM, Listen Notes, and Pandora. Last but not least, look for the bright green icon because here at Underground Christian, we love green. If you wish to contact us, please send an email to undergroundchristian at outlook.com. It's not that I look at that very often, but I do look at it and I will respond uh, eventually. 
If you wish to help with the podcast, please let me know in an email. Until the next time, keep your, or even if you've got some ideas for the podcast, and if you want to hear about something, let me know that too. Until next time, keep your eyes up, your head down, and if it's in your heart, go out your back door and do the work of God. But if your heart is hard like a stone toward God, if you ask him, he will give you a new soft one, much like flesh. Uh, At least until something happens that we don't want to have happen to you, which we're going to go into soon. You do have to ask, but if you ask, you will get one of those new hearts and you will be called one of the lucky ones. Then you will have some skin in the fight, in God's camp at least, and you will be able to do his will on this earth. Thank you for listening, and until next time, enjoy the nice music. Music